biggest innovations don't always occur where you expect. Canon, Nikon, they didn't invent the Go Anywhere camera known as the GoPro. It was a surfer who wanted to film his friends. Automakers didn't believe styling could attract buyers to electric vehicles until Tesla defined the industry. The reality is that insights can occur anywhere and come from anyone. And Will Grannis, managing director of Google's CTO office, knows that. The more ambitious, the more ambiguous, the more complex, the better. Because in my experience, if you're going to try to transform an industry, it's hard and it takes a long time. It takes years of discovery, of trying things, of finding what works and amplifying that. And this whole consideration of people, process and technology. And so in the CTO office, one of our goals is to work on the most ambitious projects that our customers have. Find the most ambitious projects with an eye towards redefining an industry, and that's the mission of Google's office of the CTO. And it's one that Will takes seriously. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Will describes how his office works with some of the most prominent companies to help build better customer experiences. He also discusses how holistic team building can be a recipe for innovation and why disruption across industries can happen anywhere. Enjoy. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries and today, we have the managing director who works at the office of the CTO at Google, Will Grannis. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's uh, great to be here. No, we were pumped to have you here. And, you know, right out the gate, I want to ask you a simple question. Office of the CTO, what does that mean? We did a little homework. It sounds like you guys provide some knowledge and uh, service-based knowledge. Give us an idea of what is the office of the CTO. Sure, Albert. Thanks. Think of the opportunity to work with a group of CTOs, like cherry pick, hand pick a group of CTOs from every industry, every uh, aspect of technology, put them into a collective and then unlock all of their potential to help customers on their journey to the cloud. That's what we do. So we're a group of peers, peer CTOs, globally distributed. And it's a really cool group because we get people from all walks of life. We have people from every uh, region, every background, every industry, and our sole mission is to help organizations like Shopify use collaboration technologies better so that they can serve their own shop CEOs better, or uh, someone like Ford who wants to make your car super connected in an awesome digital experience. You know, a group like ours gets to work with them hand in hand in those journeys across every industry and every use case you can imagine. So it's, it's actually a real privilege for me and the team. So instead of them, let's say, hiring an outside consulting firm or something like that, that has some type of domain experience, they come directly to the source, I guess, the builders of the products and says, hey, hey, Will, I want to do something. Can you advise me on what's the recommended path or something like that to take? Yeah, it's the words we like to use are collaborative innovation. So if you go back you know, 10, 15, even 20 years, this concept of open innovation uh, was around in the industry when I was getting started. And it basically said, you know, a firm can only do so much by itself. But if it was willing to open up mm-hmm. its idea of who would be involved in their innovation system, maybe they could accomplish more, right? Ecosystems, partnerships. And so in Google, we've essentially created this capability where now, instead of a CTO at you know, Ford or Shopify or Major League Baseball or Procter & Gamble or, or whoever, instead of having to go and engage with 10, 15, 20 different peers to get a view of technology that spans from you know, chip design all the way up to you know, SaaS, they can go to one place. And it's not a transactional relationship. It's not a, oh, I'm thinking about buying this or utilizing this in the cloud. Tell me all about it. It's more of a, it starts with a business problem. Like we want to create an entirely new customer experience. We're actually not even sure how we want to do it. And so in a group like ours, because we're an engineering and because we're a strategic investment that our CEO puts forward for those customers, 
we're not focused on a deal. We're not focused on making, you know, making a product sale. We're focused on solving these really ambitious problems that these customers have. So when they come and raise their hand and say, we want to talk to the, this group, it sounds like the way you described it is most of the, most of the time, like I said, it starts with a problem. So there is no, there is no turnkey solution or there's not even a turnkey stack. There's a, a lot of times it sounds like, is it, is it true that maybe even no one's even solved this problem before? Like it's brand new. Like it's a new thing that's never been done before. And ergo, I need to have some of the smartest people in the room to even figure out, you know, A, should I, B, can I, uh, I don't know what order that goes, but it sounds like that's the kind of problem you guys deal with. Yeah. The more ambitious, the more ambiguous, the more complex, the better. Because in my experience, if you're going to try to transform an industry, you know, and, and before coming to Google, I spent a couple of decades in enterprise technology. My experience there was, man, if you want to disrupt aerospace or manufacturing or the public sector, it's hard and it takes a long time. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, and, and a lot of new technology emerges like, oh, cool, we can just use this technology and, you know, it will rapidly advance, you know, a customer experience, efficiency, supply chain optimization, whatever. And that, that just isn't true. It takes years. It takes years of discovery, of trying things, of finding what works and amplifying that. And this whole consideration of people, process, and technology. And so in the CTO office, one of our goals is to work on the most ambitious projects that our customers have because we know that if it's not meaningful for them and for their industry, you know, it's hard to generate the institutional will from both parties to go and make, uh, you know, make those projects successful. And it also, it probably won't be the best fit for our team because our team, again, is more of a, this collaborative innovation function. It requires iteration. It requires a lot, you know, the three kind of steps we talk about in a team are focus on the user, think 10X and rapidly prototype. And this comes from Google's, you know, decades of experience delivering, you know, global scale platforms. And that is, you know, like 50%, 60%, 70% of the challenge is actually just defining the problem you're trying to solve, especially when you're doing these first doves, because you're not even sure. So I want to go into that because you wrote an article about this. Uh, you, you titled it, What to Bring on Your ML Journey for anyone who wants to read it. It is on LinkedIn. And you said like one of the biggest challenges is this is actually problem selection is like, you know, there's a lot of problems you want to solve. You want to solve for a lot of things. You talk about in this article specifically, people are nervous because of course, if they invest too much energy, resource, time, you name it in the wrong problem, well, inevitably the solution is going to be unfit. It's not going to move the needle the way the business had hoped. Talk a little bit about that. Like how do you, you work together to help say like, Hey, is that even worth solving or should we solve it in a different way? Or we're solving the wrong problem. Talk about how that even comes about. Well, I think this is one of those unique aspects of our group is that we're allocated the time and the patience and the experience level in our team is so high that we don't enter into these projects going, oh, okay, well, let's just, you know, spin up some VMs. Let's go grab, uh, you know, this analytics data warehousing system and let's go like try. Uh, because we know that a big part of the success of these long-term strategic projects is cross-functional buy-in. Right? So we have to make sure that the stakeholder group that defines the problem is diverse as well. Because if it's just IT running forward, then you have the line of business going, well, I'm not really sure that that's useful for me. And if it's the line of business going forward and trying to do these rapid experiments without the buy-in of central IT, then it's not sustainable over time. Right? And you don't have the operational uh, lattice work that you need to sustain these capabilities over the many years that they'll be implemented. And so you know, right away, Problem definition includes this kind of bringing everybody to the table mindset, and that that takes time. It takes time to get you know a line of business to bring their strategic plan and IT to say you know we're going to be open to this new way of developing technology or this new technology we're trying to build. And you know when when you talk about this problem selection, you know in the article one of the things I mentioned and I've mentioned this publicly before is that but it's so important to reiterate is that you never know where the insight's going to come from, mm -hmm. right? You think like, oh, it's IT. So if we bring the IT people, like I'll get director of IT, I'll get you know, head of ops. And it's really hard to predict where the insights around, you know, where to focus will come from. You know, we're working with a really large retailer and, you know, the insight of where to focus came from a non-IT, non-technical team 
that we just, you know, we invited into this collaborative innovation space and they had this insight around, you know, the most useful thing we might be able to do would be to just reduce the friction in this uh, online checkout without kind of over instrumenting or like overburdening people with recommendations, because that actually was counter to the experience they were trying to create. But if you think of it from an IT standpoint, you're like, you want to be most helpful, give them great recommendations, give them other things to buy. But actually the trade-off was actually, you know, the speed to checkout was the most important criteria. And that came from someone not in IT and not in the technology team. We heard and did some homework on you and heard you on another podcast and how you talk about diversity of teams. And one of the cool things you're just talking about it just a second ago as well, is that a lot of innovation comes from people that are outside of what you would think the proper domain is. So effectively supporting the idea that ideas can come from anywhere. So problems can come from anywhere. Solutions could come from anywhere. And I've done homework or research that read about like uh, uh, most of the most innovative products that we now know of today did not come from people with any type of domain experience. And they went on to use examples like, you know, Nick Woodman, who founded GoPro, no camera experience. It didn't come from Olympus. It didn't come from Canon, you know, Spanx, Sarah Blakely. It didn't come from hosiery companies. Like they didn't think of it. And this pattern repeats itself over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. I believe Shopify, you mentioned earlier, the guys were running a snowboarding store when they're like, they couldn't sell more snowboards. Like, oh man, we need, a, we need an online store. And like, oh, instead of building our own, we should just build one for other people too. Yeah. So a bunch of snowboarders who had developer shops, of course, ended up building a massive technology disruptor. So when you think of that, like, I guess the, the next question is, so who do you listen to or who do you solicit feedback from? Because if everyone is a person that can give a great idea, but you can't listen to everybody. There's too much. And then how do you distill it? Because one of the things I always joke about with, uh, or I used to do a talk on is that when innovative ideas are truly innovative, the reality is it's very similar to what Henry Ford talked about. It's like, no one's actually talking about it. So you actually don't have data to suggest that what you're about to do is going to be successful, right? He famously talked about, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would sit faster, horses and carriages. Yeah. Because you can conceptualize the fact that you could have a car. Absolutely. I mean, when, in those examples that just gave, right, GoPro, why didn't a camera company come up with it? Well, they would have said no one's asking for this waterproof camera, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> no one was. So how do you think about, how does your office, how does your group think about, you know, how do you prioritize things that don't exist? I guess that's the biggest, the bit magic question you guys are really answering. Yeah. We listen. And I, I, I can't, I cannot stress this enough. We listen because the faint signals are out there. You know, having worked in, you know, Fortune 500 companies a couple of times over being an entrepreneur, an investor, you know, and a lot of, and an advisor to a lot of different uh, organizations, companies across, you know, the span of things you could imagine from public sector to, you know, more like less regulated markets. It's amazing how often we forget to listen. And uh, we had a CEO at Google who would say, you know, it's often the executives who know the least about what will work. And our job is to create an environment that can foster innovation, but not necessarily be the ones who have to know what, you know, which innovation is going to win a priori. And that mindset is really what we've used to build, you know, for example, the office of CTO, because our whole process starts with listening and not just listening to one group and not just listening to one customer, but our job is to listen to customers across industries big, small, venture-backed to, you know, uh, traditional enterprise. And part of what we're doing is we're listening for the tremors and we're listening for the signals. And every once in a while, these things start to pop up. And, you know, so for example, right now, one of the signals that uh, we've been working on for years is sustainability in IT. Everybody's talking about it now, but, you know, Google has been carbon neutral since 2007. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas a lot of people now are like, oh yeah, we'll be there by 2030, 2040. And this institutional capacity to kind of think about what's coming next, to listen really deeply before you run off and try to build things and being very methodical about building an environment that can foster listening and hearing. Because I would contend, having been a CTO public company a couple of times, I would contend that the answers are out there. It's just we often aren't tuned to hear them, or when we do, 
they're potentially so different from the mental model that we have or the legacy that has made us successful. You know, it's kind of the innovator's dilemma. You know, it's almost impossible sometimes for organizations to transform. I will tell you, one of the things that one of the barriers to transformation is significantly lower today than it was 10 or 15 years ago, you know, when I experienced it in, you know, like aerospace, for example, is cloud. Yeah. Today, you can listen to one of the, you can hear one of those things in your organization and you can, you know, generate a proof of value for, let's say like embedded analytics at the edge, you know, in an IOT scenario for a telecom, you can test those ideas orders of magnitude more efficiently and quickly than you could when it was like, oh, your idea, that sounds cool. Let's go buy a data center because it doesn't matter how good the idea is or how much you're listening or if the barrier to entry is, you know, millions of dollars to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to get stuck. And this, this is actually, Albert, what brought me to Google. I was, uh, you know, CTO at L3, you know, pretty traditional electronics, you know, IT manufacturer engineering company. And one of our data science teams was experimenting with a database, uh, the GDELT database, like this massive global database of event media, kind of social trending data. And one day, you know, our data science was like, hey, I want to be able to run some analysis across this database. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's going to be pretty tough because we would have to essentially, you know, like go buy this, you know, go buy this data warehousing, you know, vendors equipment and install it and tune it. And, you know, in a year and a half, sure, we can get to that. Yeah. And uh, she was pretty, she, she didn't like that answer. So uh, like all great engineers, right? She said, okay, that's cool. I reject the premise that the constraint you've given me is the actual constraint. And she went out and she found this thing called BigQuery online. Yep. And uh, she came back two weeks later and was able to run queries over the GDELT database using BigQuery without buying any IT. And I think it cost us like 1500 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pay for use, right? <laughs> for, for data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I will tell you, this was a really big moment for me because, you know, we all as leaders, I think sometimes we get into the track of like, this is what's possible. These are the constraints. This is the box I have to work with. And, you know, this engineer in our team showed me just a radical change in the barriers to entry for doing, you know, really, really highly performant analytics. And, you know, more that I dug into BigQuery and this was, you know, 2013 ish, you know, it feels like forever ago. They were already, Google was already a decade ahead of the industry, a decade and a half ahead of the industry. And I was like, I, you know, that's, that's going to be a really big deal because if you can open up the analysis, if you can lower the barriers to entry and you pile that, you know, kind of listening, big thinking, experimentation mindset and process. Yeah. Now you've got something. And that's, that's what's fueling these transformations in these industries right now is this kind of convergence of like design thinking and, you know, really like problem analysis along with lowering the barriers to entry to show initial proof of value and kind of get that rocket fuel in those innovation projects. So this was back before you got to Google that this, uh, this engineer yeah. introduced you to this problem set or solution to a problem set. I was introduced to the same thing uh, when we were a so I was at a software company that got acquired and there was a traditional data center software operation. It was like an image recognition analysis type product that they were trying to engineer. And one of our engineers was like, why would you even do that? It's like, you know, and I don't want to name the name, but you know, there's another public cloud that had an image recognition service. And like, we just run all the Instagram photos through that. And they'll tell us like, if it's a, is it a, what animal it is or what scene it is? They're like, oh, but you have to run a line and to order a line from a, uh, a cable company is going to cost you X and it's going to take months. Like this project, we need an answer, you know, this month or whatever. Well, I don't know what their constraint was. And the guy's like, no, nah, I can spin it up now. <laughs> right, right, right. I was like, I'm going to be done. I'm going to have you a proof of concept tomorrow. Hold my coffee, right? Like I got this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, he said, give me a small sample set and we got to cook. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I saw that was when that was 2015, probably similar time frame as you. When I saw that the ability to, like you said, prove a concept, test, test a hypothesis, had fundamentally changed. I was like, oh, this is, this is fundamentally different. This is not like waiting for someone who wants to appropriate you a branch so that you could code in one little, you know, like this was completely mm -hmm. different. Like you could replicate a whole system, code on it, test it and tear it all down. If it was a failure, you could tear it all down. Even if it was a success, you could merge it. So 
it was just a mind-boggling transformation. For yourselves, you know, more and more we're starting to see software is infiltrating the physical world, right? That's all the new innovations typically involves, in my opinion, typically involve a lot of physical world applications, right? You mentioned Ford having more smarter consoles. Uh, we've seen doorbells transform. We're seeing alarm systems transform. Google also has, you know, at home, like with the Nest products. So software's moving into IoT. Everything, everything we use is somehow software enabled, somehow. In the office of the CTO, do you got, how, how does that work? Because you have some like aerospace background. Do people have backgrounds? Like, do you have people that are like software guys? You have people that are big data guys? You have people that are, you know, engineering, like fit structural engineering people? Like, I don't know how this works. You know, I feel <laughs> like the problems that, because I was thinking about this when I went to, so I, I this is pre-pandemic and I went to Great Wolf Lodge and I saw a technology that I was like, oh, this is so obvious. I don't understand how they didn't come up with this earlier, but it was like, you could put your money on these bracelets. And I saw these kids running around these bracelets and they were paying for things. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself like, well, how did that come together? Like yep. who has to come up with it? And the, I feel like that's the kind of problem you guys are solving. It's like, hey, I want to transform the way people pay, but the people that are going to do the paying don't have phones or credit cards. Solve this problem for me. Yeah, I mean- Give me an idea, like what, what is the talent breadth of people that are inside of this, the office of the CTO? And, you know, because you are, you mentioned with your Ford example is that you are crossing over into the physical realm, like oh, software's going everywhere, right? So you would need some type of engineering, I feel like engineering people too, to make these things happen. When I mention collaborative innovation, there's a reason I keep mentioning it. It's because it unlocks this really cool condition, which is you don't have to have all the skills in your own organization if you're, if you're willing to collaborate. That's true. And so what we do in the office CTO to enable collaborative innovation with our customers is we focus in the areas that are going to be most useful for them that are also really core to like the organization around us. So, you know, Google is one of the world's, you know, premier, if not the world's premier, uh, software engineering organization at you know, global scale. But we also do hardware. Yep. And we also, you know, we do, you know, from SaaS all the way down into, you know, custom accelerator design and, and, you know, in almost every industry, every geo. And so it's our responsibility as an innovation partner to join up with our customers in these industries with a diverse set of backgrounds. So we have people who have been founders and entrepreneurs. We have people who have had most of their career inside of, uh, you know, like a fortune 500 is a CTO or, or, um, SVP of engineering. We have folks who are based in Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo. We have people who are based in, uh, Munich in London. We have folks who are based in the Bay area in Detroit, in New York city. And, you know, that geographic diversity, the uh, kind of background diversity, and then just people who approach problems you know, differently. Some people are kind of the quiet, you know, they need to hear something, they need to think about it, they need to write a doc, and then they come back. Some people are more, I need to speak with other people and I need to shape an idea verbally. And if you take all of that and you mix it all together and you get to a sufficient size, what ends up happening is you can be a really, we, I think we, you know, we can show up as pretty great partners, but it's in service of our customers. Right? Like we can't replicate the in-depth knowledge that like uh, an AB InBev has around visual inspection of, you know, <laughs> beer as it flows through the line. Like they know their domain yeah. better than we will ever know their domain. But we understand how near real-time vision could allow them to stop doing manual inspections or, you know, this very costly kind of physical inspections and move to, you know, with a, just a couple of cameras and a little bit of IT, now you can do a visual inspection that has as good or better results than the way that you were doing it before. And what's the, you know, what's the ramification on throughput? And this goes back to what we were talking about around, you know, these, you never quite know where these gems are going to come from. Yeah. But if, if we show up with the right mix of, you know, technical background, geographic background and uh, diversity and just diversity of human beings, and we pair that with our customers, then you get these outcomes where they know their business, we know cloud, and you put the two together and you get these solutions that can completely change industries. 
So in that ABM example, I'm assuming you have to also work with some type of like camera sensor companies to to make sure that you guys can throughput. And they probably have, I'm assuming they have like the right partner that says like, hey, I can process, you know, X number of cans and bottles per second. Or I don't know how fast it's flying through, but I'm sure it's, it's moving. Absolutely. So like the shape of IT has to be tailored and the shape of the team that we have that supports, you know, these relationships has to be tailored because in the end, it's our customers who are leading their industries, right? So it's Shopify that's redefining e-commerce, right? It's Major League Baseball with their, you know, ability to leverage all this data and create these really immersive customer experiences, right? And viewer experiences. It's Verizon who's changing the way that, you know, you experience support when you, you know, you need to need to call up and get something done. They're the ones leading. And my job and our job in the office of CTO is to be this kind of, you know, quiet, collaborative innovation partner for them that plugs into a construct that works for them. So sometimes it's going to mean a lot of partners. And sometimes it's going to mean not as many partners, but that's not something we dictate. That's something that we take a look at the problem. We think about how we need to solve it. And we take into account, you know, their business relationships, their geography, their unique way of going to market, their unique way of building technology. And we kind of morph and form who we bring from the office to the CTO, other parts of Google that we bring to the table and funnel through this mechanism, right? Because sometimes these projects will span mobile. They'll span AI, they'll span cloud. And so we want to make sure that, you know, also Google's showing up through this kind of focal lens and this collaborative focal lens. And that's where we focus. Yeah. The idea that you can get this type of advice from someone who's not, you know, like you kind of mentioned it before, like that already has maybe a, like a decision towards a bias towards themselves. Like if you ask a private consulting firm that charges a specific fee, like let's just call it a service fee, right? But they're going to have a biased recommendation that says, well, we, you should hire us to do this X, Y, and Z. <laughs> well, I, I need to be really, I'm sorry, sorry to like jump in, but I have to say that if it wasn't for, you know, our cloud CEO, Thomas Kurian, and his, you know, he's talk, he talks all the time about being the best partner for digital transformation with our customers. Yeah. It's that mindset that gives us the ability to invest in a group like this. Yeah. And take these long bets, right? Because if it was all about the short term, you know, we really need to maximize, then, you know, a team like this is difficult for us to exist there, right? And then those other incentives and these other models start to take over. Yeah. And our customers, you know, that's not why they come to the office of CTO. That's not why they work with us. They work with us because we're their peers and we have their best interest in mind, right? And we're a long-term strategic investment that isn't pressured by those other forms of incentives. No, no, no. I, I like that a lot. I mean, it makes the most sense when, if you're not biased in your action, if your only order, I guess your order is, is to make sure that customers have the best experience possible. And it makes it super easy to recommend, you know, solutions that maybe not even yours, right? Like, mm -hmm. Hey, you got to lean more towards this. Talk to us a little bit about your career. Cause it's, it's a pretty interesting thing. A pretty interesting place. We started and you started off at West Point. I got to know, you know, and you've, you've served as, like you said, CTO, publicly traded companies. You worked in aerospace military guy, you've served in the US Army. Well, let's walk people back and let them know you a little bit better. So you walk through the doors at West Point, your freshman year. I forgot what's the term they call freshmen. Plebe. Yeah, plebe. Yeah. I know you guys have a yeah. plebe summer and they treat you they treat you pretty bad. <laughs> well, I, I got the same haircut that I have now. Unfortunately, your your listeners won't be able to see it, but uh it's short. When you walked in through the doors at West Point, what did you think you were going to do as an adult? Okay. Well, wow. Uh, big question. Big question. Um, you know, I didn't even know that West Point and, and the military would be a choice for me. I was the first person in my family, other than my grandfather who served in World War II, to be in the military or to choose the military as a, you know, the beginning of my career. And looking back now, it's always easier to connect the dots looking back than it is at the time. Yeah. Right? So when I was 17 and I decided to do it, yeah. it was really out of a, a desire to serve, to help others, you know, to take on that responsibility. And it's something I've, you know, always personally deeply believed in is being of service to others. You know, there are a lot of interim steps in between then and now, but I don't think it's any coincidence that the job that I love the most and the role that has been the most fun in all of my career and the thing that I'm loving doing right now is really serving others. Mm -hmm. Right. And my role as the head of the CTO office, my job isn't to be the person who knows everything. My job is to bring together a group of extremely talented CTOs from industry, from Google, 
and to empower them, right? To do what's best for our customers, our partners, healthcare, life's, you know, thin financial services, manufacturing, aerospace, transportation, all of these really complex problems that have big ramifications on our daily lives and to take all of the distractions away from them, right? And to, you know, empower them, to encourage them, to make their careers awesome. And, you know, thinking back now, you know, it's just another form of service and, you know, making our customers successful, yeah, enabling them to be the heroes, right? That's what I want. And that's what we want as a team. And that's kind of the same spirit of service, I think, that brought me to, to West Point is I want, if someone's got to stand in front and keep people safe, I want to be that person. No, that's awesome. Yeah. And so from there, man, it was a wild ride from, you know, getting my head shaved and, and learning how to march and like shine shoes, which I was not good at just to, in full disclosure, I was not good at. <laughs> One of the things we've learned about people that have gone to any of the military academies is their majors are never what you think they are. Uh, <laughs> they'll have, they'll listen. To, oh, I, I know what that means. Like, oh no, what I meant for this. So we were checking out your LinkedIn operations research. What were you studying at the time? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to pull back the curtain, Albert. You're going to get an exclusive here. Yeah. So I don't, here we go. I don't, I've never talked about this publicly. I love history. So. I was uh, at West Point. You have to choose a major in your second year. Yeah. And I was on track to be a, a British history major. I didn't know that was offered. Yeah. I, who knew, right? <laughs> uh, certainly in an IT based podcast, you probably very rarely, you know, is like, oh, British history. That's great. Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> um, but I was really interested in what moments were most pivotal in like the shaping of societies. And, you know, it just turns out like, uh, European history, British history is very rich. And I was in my second year, but I've always loved computers and math. When I was a kid, I would go to my grandma's house and she had this, you know, kind of barely visible television and this console. And it had a, it had one pad with a dial on it. And you just turn the dial. It was Pong, right? I didn't know at the time, but I was super small. I remember playing this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was the, it was the not great, uh, you know, resolution Pong where it was like barely green, you know, bars sliding up and down the, the side of the, the TV. But man, I used to love that. I would spend hours, I'd go over there and that's all I would do. And then, you know, I got really excited about like Oregon trail on the, you know, on the Apple, you know, computer in grade school. And so I had always had this, these kind of two tracks of, I was very, I was always very interested in why things were the way that they were like pivotal moments. And I always mm -hmm. really liked computers and math. And so I'm in my second year at West Point and, you know, a friend of mine is like, Hey, what are you going to pick? And I'm like, European history, you know, British history. And he's like, why would you do that? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, okay, let's think about jobs that you could have, you know, post choice. <laughs> I'm like, I would love to be a teacher. He's like, hey, man. He's like, check this out. I, I know a bunch of us are going to go, you know, look at the, this thing called operations research because it's a split. It's a math department degree, but you get to do a lot of practical applications like systems engineering. And, and it turns out that that was like the most important decision, you know, I think I could have made at the time because I'm not sure I would have, I would be the, you know, head of the office of CTO at Google with a, a European history major, who knows. But what was really interesting about it, it got me into kind of this, this whole new world of taking my love of math and, and computers, but applying it. So operations research, uh, depending on you know, where you get it, it's about like the application of linear algebra, statistical probabilities, you know, queuing theory to real problems in real businesses. Fun fact, linear algebra is cool again. I never knew taking linear algebra at West Point would mean that when machine learning and deep learning became really, really cool. That like I already knew what gradient descent fundamentally was, and I already understood, you know, the, the kind of fundamental math that sits underneath deep learning. Like I became relevant again, you know, like 15, 20 years later. But that was that was a really important moment to kind of give me the push towards technology as a profession, not just as something that I did on the side. And you know, after graduation, it looks like you served as a captain in the U.S. Army. One of the things that we've talked with many veterans that have come on the show, because we did a mission, did a show, a series exclusively for veterans who then became entrepreneurs, is they talk about this moment when they leave the service and like you've kind of been scheduled or told what to do every single day of your life for, let's say, uh, at, at this point, this would be nine, almost 10 years for you. Yeah. That it's actually quite odd. 
to not have that. And then it's like, oh, what do I do next? Did you experience the same or did you, you know, leave the military behind and say like, I know exactly what I'm going to do as a civilian now? I had no idea what I was going to do as a civilian. I got really lucky. Like most great stories of if people are telling the truth, most great opportunities come through a network. Yeah. And uh, it just so happens I knew some people that knew some people and I got, uh, I was offered this job at a small company. Best thing that ever happened to me. Because I think I really would have struggled if I had gone from a really large, lots of hierarchy in the organization and gone to just another one that was just like it. I think if I had eventually tried to become you know, an entrepreneur out of that, it would have been much more difficult. But I was the shock moment kind of happened for me immediately where I went to the small company. It wasn't my own, right? So like the stakes, I didn't, I didn't have all the stakes of trying to learn how to be entrepreneurial and have like my paycheck and the milk and the eggs all dependent on my ability to make this transition quickly. Uh, but I got this opportunity to go to this uh, small company and become the head of product. And I had to learn a lot. I had to learn a lot about everything from quality assurance on the manufacturing line to finance, to you know, sales, to you know, all of the things to be a really good product manager. You, know, you kind of have to understand the business and the technical aspect. And that, that definitely helped me transition much more effectively by going to a small company, but not one that I started and gaining that experience. And then throughout my career, I've kind of gone to big companies and I've done entrepreneurial things and gone to big companies and done entrepreneurial things. And so later when I wanted to start my own company, it kind of gave me that confidence that I knew I could operate without a lot of the, you know, the structure that I had had in the, in the military and large companies. Now that's awesome. Yeah. The company you started, what's next core? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell our audience, what, what were you focused on there? Sure. You know, no, nothing super ambitious is trying to solve a problem that was really important to national security, which was. No, I love how you, <laughs> nothing ambitious, just trying to solve problems related to national security. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> but wait, there's more. Uh, it's great to be an entrepreneur, right? Because you just have this belief that you can go solve these really big problems. And sometimes you actually can. In this case, I had observed firsthand working a lot with the public sector that one of uh, the largest frustrations in kind of the innovation ecosystem, small companies, mid-sized companies, trying to work with public sector is just the lack of access uh, you know, to innovation. And you know, it was kind of concentrated around a, a few really big companies. And so what's next was a company designed to use data, big data, machine learning to analyze technology portfolios and give leading indicators of what technology would be most useful and most disruptive to public sector organizations. It turns out that uh, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> However, the derivative uh, kind of of that was that we developed some big data technology, some unsupervised learning algorithms that could actually backtrack into a supply chains for really bad things. So people who are trying to do really bad things and obfuscate those things uh, related to nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. And it's amazing what was available in open source and in the world out there that if you could just utilize technology a little bit better and a little bit faster, you could connect the dots and help solve one of the really, really big problems of our time, which is you know, how do you make sure that really, really nasty things don't get in the hands of, uh, you know, people who want to uh, use them in really bad ways? And so that was the that was the foundation of the company. And it's a testament to modern technology. We were able to do that without spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars on IT. We utilized, you know, what was then, you know, very early on uh, the beginning of cloud-based technologies and event-driven big data systems and, you know, some pretty poor code that I wrote. <laughs> Well, your story is very similar to a lot of, in that regard, and a lot of other uh, successful technologists, which is the constant thirst, I would say, I call it a thirst, or the desire to solve some type of problem. Like most people that become really good at in this field, it's not that they've, I don't know how to explain, like they've, they've definitely, they've taken so many at bats. And that's the best way I would think of it, is so many cracks at solving problems that they just, they've just naturally figured out a great methodology, I would say, or process for attacking problems. Would you say you have, like, what would be your process? You know, you mentioned deep, deep listening to understand the problem. But once you've understood the problem, what's the step one you would recommend someone to go solve that problem? So like, let's say you think you've, you're pretty confident this is the problem. Next step, how do I go solve it? Yeah, it's, and ironically, it's very similar to uh, the approach I mentioned at Google earlier. Three steps, 
you start with listening, try to pick up on what's going on. There are three steps focusing on the user, like who actually is going to benefit from the technology that you might develop and will it be useful? Why would it be useful? Why would they need to have it? What would be the barriers to them adopting that technology? And really a deep sense. People, you know, you mentioned the Henry Ford quote, which is one of my favorite earlier, because when you ask people questions, they'll tell you answers, but it's their behavior that really tells you their priorities. Yeah. And over time, what I've discovered is I have to find ways to uncover kind of the hidden needs because the stated needs are either A, obvious and being you know, addressed by a whole range of, of you know, other competitors, or B, it's not the real problem. So I would say if, if I was to allocate 100% of my time to a process of innovation that you know, at least 50%, 70% is in that focusing on the user, and that user could be a consumer. It could be a business. It doesn't matter. But really, really thinking through that stakeholder map, thinking through why, and then testing. You know, like okay, well, I've done things uh, like uh, had people use technology and videotape them doing it with their permission. And it's interesting because some of the spoken feedback is very different. But if you watch like their eyebrows or their faces go from happy to sad, or their mannerisms and they get frustrated at certain points in using it. It's funny because they'll actually call out completely different parts of, of the system as being the most frustrating, but you can tell which ones, you know, where the real opportunity is just by watching their body language and how they react, whether it's delight or frustration. And then, you know, the second part of the process is making sure that we're shooting high enough or aiming big enough, you know, this 10x thinking that, you know, Google, I think is pretty famous for. We didn't call it that. I didn't call it that before Google, but it's a great way to summarize it, which is if you're not taking an ambitious enough approach, then by the time you build it, it might be incremental and no one cares. Because hmm. how long, Albert, does it take on average for a product, like from its concept phase to finding product market fit in some reasonable scale? How long does that take? I mean, I have no idea. I, like, let's think of, uh, well, let's use a big company or I don't know. Just like take a guess, take a guess. Like you're, you deal with uh, innovators all the time and, you know, entrepreneurs all the time. Is it a hardware or software product? Uh, let's call it primarily software based. It's software based for it to get to like ground. I mean, I feel like it would take at least, probably at least seven years. I would say at least seven. Yeah. Cause I, I read that Shopify, I mean, we, that was the, what you used before. Mm-hmm. Shopify was born prior to the housing crisis in 2008. Mm hmm. Because they, so they already had something before the housing crisis started because that's when they started to really grow users. It's like people didn't have jobs. So they started making things. I remember reading an article distinctly about that. Now they don't go public. I want to say until like when they go public, 2016. So I don't know, 2015. So they were, that's, that's over 10 years. So you nailed it. My experience and the data I've collected says it takes anywhere from four to seven years from the beginning of a concept to realizing generalized, you know, kind of market fit where other people go, oh yeah, like it's starting to succeed. It's starting to happen generally four to seven years. So if you're not aiming high enough with that product or that platform or that solution that you're building, and it takes seven years for it to actually start to return, you know, like business results that everybody and really start to disrupt what happens? It's like, it gets passed by. Yeah. It's, it's not important enough. And that's why, you know, a company with a fundamentally different approach like Shopify to say, you know what, it's about building a platform that will enable everyone to be a CEO, yeah, to build their dreams, right. To reach their aspirations. That's a, that was a very radical concept at the time that they did it, taking that path, you know, over the course of when they finally, when it finally lands and the sense of time plays out, it's big enough that when they do it, it's super meaningful. Yeah. But you also had the foresight 10 years ago. <laughs> That's why, you know, you have to do it because if you're not, somebody else is. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what industry, you know, and the customers we work with, whether it's you know, Deutsche Bank or Sabre or Ford or MLB or whoever, they all know that they have to continuously push the frontier of their customer's experience of you know how their business provides value because if they don't somebody else will and if you add the convergence of you know cloud has now lowered the stakes to be able to innovate and create the solutions yeah you have to move like you have to take these bold moves and you know the third part of the process 
it allows you to get the feedback, which is this uh, rapid prototyping, right? So you define this problem, you've got, you've, you've really dug into it and you, you go, you know what? Like, for example, you know, like Toby was pretty frustrated about his, his snowboard shop, yeah. right? And how difficult it was, right? He knew because he was experiencing the problem, Yeah. right? He's like, you know, by proving that he could do it, you know, kind of this third phase is rapidly prototyping. He's like, hey, I bet we could do this for everybody. And, you know, that rapid being able to get some feedback, even if it isn't a full mock, or even if it isn't, you know, doesn't have all the features, being able to convince yourself you're either on the right track or, or not on track yeah, and loop, right? So it's this three phase, but then you're looping um, really, really quickly. That's my approach, you know, focusing on the user, thinking 10X and uh, rapidly prototyping, but I can't emphasize the listening enough. No, that's awesome. You know, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about that because, um, you know, we're running low on time, but you're very insightful with your experience. So like, let's take what I was talking about before, like certain, some of the invention, like I, I thought of this while you were talking about this rapid loop innovate test. And I, I don't know why I just came into my head, but like, why didn't Unilever already think of Dollar Shave Club? Do you know what I mean? Like they already had the supply chain of razors. They eventually bought Dollar Shave Club for $4 billion. Right. But it wasn't just them. Schick, basically nobody did this. And by the way you describe things, they easily could have innovated a software solution to create a subscription model for razor blades. And that would have been, I mean, hindsight's always 2020, but it's like <laughs> obviously a rocket ship home run. These, all these companies came about doing this. Why is it, do you think that companies sometimes don't take these bold. I mean, to me, that's not even that bold. Maybe in hindsight, if I were to sit down in a board meeting back when Dollar Shave Club came around and if had someone brought this idea up, maybe someone would be like, oh, that's too expensive network infrastructure. Like we can't build an app to capture all these subscriptions. Our retail partners will be furious. I don't know what their reasoning would have been, but I'd be curious on your side because you see things a little differently. What prevents people from doing things that, I mean, I guess when you look back in time, they seem clearly obvious, like they should have tried it. Well, you know, I, I can't speak and won't speak for Unilever, but I can say generally that there's a couple things going on. One is we all make assumptions. Yeah. Maybe it'll cost too much. Maybe it'll take too long. Maybe people don't actually, you know, need those things. And, you know, I'm going to go back to, you know, power of modern technology is that you can test your assumptions, you know, to go test a market these days using the right tools, whether it's, you know, like your classic analytics you know, um, BI, or, you know, even moving into machine learning, it's much more accessible and approachable now. And it's much easier and cheaper and faster to test your hypotheses. And so, you know, doubt is what slows things down and doubt kind of usually you find assumptions are at the core of doubt, right? Mm. Like you make an assumption, you're like, oh, that's, you know, that will not be a big market. We can't do it. It's not on brand, whatever those things are. But I can tell you that being able to test, you know, I, I was working recently with, and uh, our team was working recently with a really cool insurance company, Brit Insurance. And, you know, this is underwriting and, you know, this market is a 300 year old plus market. And there's an assumption that it's just always the way you do things, right? You like take paper to a person and they eyeball it and they go, yeah, that, that risk sounds about right. And they use their tables and their knowledge and it's, and it's human-based knowledge. But there's an assumption there, right? And the assumption is that, that expertise right, is resident within the human and the paper and the process of interacting with paper is the, is the expected modality. And it turns out that you know, Brit decided, you know what, I think using modern technology, we can test this assumption. And they built an all digital insurance arm called Key. <laughs> they did it in a year plus, And it was, I think the third most valuable tech startup within a year in the UK. That is awesome. Right. All from assumptions. Like we all go through our everyday lives, making a lot of assumptions about what is possible, but now we can test it. And that's the power of, you know, that's the power of cloud. And, you know, that's why, that's why this mindset of collaborative innovation can be so powerful because you can find fellow travelers that can kind of poke holes in your assumptions or question your assumptions. Right. So like our customers question our assumptions and we can question theirs. Right. And by working together, kind of putting, you know, technology as a critical bit, but also process and people assumptions that we make about, you know, do we have the right skills? What will it take to build the right skills? Do we know, you know, are we a long capital cycle business 
or are we a short capital cycle business? You know, we can test those assumptions and challenge them. That is awesome. Will, you've shared a ton with us today and we only have a few minutes left. So it's time for us to transition very quickly to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. And Will, this is where we ask you questions outside of work, just so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I think so. Let's go for it. All right. So inside of your Twitter profile, you have a hockey emblem and or a hockey emoji and a golf emoji. Uh, and we looked you up on LinkedIn. It says you you follow army hockey. So did you play hockey at Ar- at West Point? I did briefly. I was a goalie. <laughs> and currently, are you still a hockey fan or are you more of a golf fan now? I've had to transition due to some poor uh, shoulder mobility. Uh, I've had to transition away from ice hockey as my primary and now golf is my primary. We also looked and saw on your LinkedIn profile that you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Is that the highest peak you've climbed? It is. Have you ever solo climbed? Uh, I have not. Do you want to? <laughs> no. And my <laughs> wife and two teenage daughters have veto rights. <laughs> As a hockey dad myself, I now also have to ask you a question. What smelled worse, you at the top of Kilimanjaro or your hockey gear in college? Uh, hockey gear, no doubt. <laughs> and my, my mom can attest uh, from, a, from a young age, especially when you don't open the bag. <laughs> If you don't air it out, you were actually bringing a scent bomb. Yes, it's not good. Yes. Will, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of the things that you guys are doing at the office of the CTO. It's pretty impressive and amazing, this idea of collaboration and what it can unlock. And I think your story of service echoed throughout the entire conversation. Uh, Appreciate everything that, you know, everything you've done and also joining us today on the show. And thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Albert. This was super fun. 